If you would, please go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We'll be there in just a few minutes. Luke chapter 14. Before we jump in, I do just want to take a moment to to thank you for the way you were an encouragement to my brother this past Wednesday. As I've grown older, I have learned that, that one of the best ways to show love is to love the people around the person you want to show love to. Um, and I was greatly encouraged by the way you showed love to my brother um, and his family. And so I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for that uh, and for bringing him here. Um, it was good to have that time with him. And hopefully it was helpful for all of you as well. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak at a church in Indianapolis where Ashley and I used to attend. And They asked me to specifically speak on this question. What is commitment and what does that look like when it comes to God and my influence on those around me? That specific question they wanted to be answered more towards the younger crowd, especially as they were going back to school and as they were going to be encountering various temptations that come with what goes with going back to school. Now, originally when they gave me this topic, I knew I was going to be speaking here a couple weeks later, and my intention was not to do this lesson. Uh, I had something else altogether picked out. One of the temptations for me when I have the opportunity to speak just once every few months is I want to come up with something new, uh, something groundbreaking, something that will be impressive and, and very encouraging, and, and yet... It's called the ancient paths for a reason. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter, Peter is uh, in recognition that he is about to leave them, the people that he's writing to. And he says in Second Peter chapter 1, I want to remind you of these things so that when I am gone, you can recall. He wrote a book about things he had already told them. He didn't need to tell them anything new. He needed to remind them of what they had been told before. And I think the same is true for us in terms of commitment. Do we, do we really need another lesson on commitment? We know we need to be committed, right? We know what we need to be committed to, or at least we say we do. We know the right answers. But sometimes we need to be reminded. And I think that is especially true in this moment, uh, at this time, in this culture. We need to be reminded of what and who we are committed to. The other dilemma that I had was that Ashley and the kids already listened to this lesson two weeks ago, Um, but Ashley had already forgotten something I talked about at lunch today, so I knew it was going to be okay uh, for me to give this lesson again, but it it was a little detail, so we won't give her a hard time about it. Um, But it also brought to mind, at the end of this lesson, I'm going to give three challenges, three things that I want us to, to work towards, three applications And I thought it would be good for them to think, did I change anything? And that that made me think, did I change anything from what I spoke about a few weeks ago? But then it also made me think when Roger and Jason are up here every week, what if they gave the same lesson two weeks later? Would it still be needed? Would I have applied anything that they had spoken about? That's a good thing for us to think about. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells a story about a wise man and a foolish man, and and we sing that song at VBS. 
The wise man built his house upon the rock. But Jesus told that lesson for adults. There was actually a similarity in that story between the wise and the foolish man. They were similar because they both heard the word. They heard the message of Jesus. The difference between the wise and the foolish is the wise man did something about it. I can be in this room week after week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights. I can hear lots of things. I can listen to the podcast. I can watch the YouTube channel. And I can still be a fool in God's eyes if I just listen, but I don't actually apply what I'm hearing. And that was a sober reminder for me as I was thinking through this. Ralph Walker, when he was here earlier in the year, talking about fellowship, he said a good question for us to ask each other is, what has God been teaching you recently? And so for me, I want to give this lesson to you as something God has been teaching me recently, because I needed to be reminded about what it means and what it looks like to be committed. So here's kind of the outline for tonight. We're going to first try and answer the question, what is commitment? Let's define it. We're going to then ask the question and answer, what does it look like? We're going to illustrate what commitment looks like with one parable and three Bible characters. And then we're going to try and answer the question, what does it look like for me to be committed? How do I prove myself? How do I leave this building tonight and go throughout this week at work and at school and show I am committed to God? We're going to have three applications at the end. So first, just answering the question, what is commitment? If you were to look it up in a dictionary, you would, you would read, uh, it is being dedicated to a cause. It is a promise or a firm decision to do something. It is a willingness to give your time and energy to a job, an activity, or something you believe in. And looking at our culture, it's no wonder why the world today is lacking truly committed Christians. We're not dedicated to anything. If you don't like your job, you just quit it and you get free money to sit at home. If you don't like your marriage, you just get a divorce and find someone else. If you don't like your gender, you just change it. We are not committed or dedicated to anything in our culture. A promise, an action, we are surrounded by lies and laziness, broken promises and bad habits, a willingness to give. I'm not given anything I expect to be given to. And time and energy, after school and work and sports and my workout and dinner and doing the dishes and cleaning the house and TV and video games, what are these things you call time and energy? Busyness to less important things has eliminated our ability to be devoted to the higher things of God. As we go through this lesson, I want us to try and have some self-reflection and be answering these questions. If commitment is being dedicated to a cause, am I dedicated to the cause of Christ? You are committed to something. Are you committed to the right thing? If commitment is a promise or a firm decision to do something, have I made a firm decision to shed the sin of laziness and do something for Jesus? And if a commitment is a willingness to give your time and energy to a job, an activity, or something you believe in, am I willing to give my best time and energy to God? The easy answer is yes. I know that's the right answer. 
I know that's what I'm supposed to be doing. The challenge is for us to do what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and 5, to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, to test yourself. Honestly, look at your life tonight. Think through what you have done this past week. Think about what you're going to be giving your life to this week and answer the questions, what am I dedicated to? What am I committed to? What am I living my life for? This quote was something I found that I thought went well with with this topic. And it says, people who are interested in doing something will do it when it's convenient. People who are committed will do it no matter what. Scripture is clear. God doesn't want people who are merely interested. He only wants committed people. Being a Christian is not convenient at school or at work or on the sports field when everybody is living contrary to the way you know you're supposed to live, and that makes you different. If you're only interested in following God but not committed, you will end up just like everyone else in this story. It will happen. Christianity was never meant to be convenient. Simply look at the life of Jesus. Was it convenient for him to hang on the cross? If it wasn't convenient, then why did he do it? Because he was committed to you. And so the answer we have to, the question we have to answer is, am I interested in him or am I truly committed to him? So if commitment to God means being dedicated to his cause, making a firm decision to actively follow him and giving him my time and energy, what does that look like? And that's where Luke chapter 14 comes in. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus will tell this parable of the great banquet. The context of Luke chapter 14, in verse 1, we actually find he is eating at a house of a ruler of the Pharisees, which is kind of interesting for Jesus. We most often think of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, for that's what he was rebuked for. But here, he's actually eating at a house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and it seems that that ruler of the Pharisees invited all of his powerful friends over to meet with Jesus. It doesn't go very well for that Pharisee, though. In the first few verses, we find there is a man with dropsy in the house. Dropsy, we uh, know, was a lower extremity swelling, a lower extremity edema, swelling either in your legs or potentially in your arms as well. It is the Sabbath day when Jesus is eating at this house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And he knows what they are looking for him to do. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath because they would consider that a sin? He asked them the question, if your son or an ox falls into a well on the Sabbath, will you not pull it out? And he heals the man. They're not super happy about that. He also notices how when they came into this dinner, they took the places of high honor. And he says, if you keep doing that, you will be humbled. He then directly looks at the Pharisee who is throwing this banquet, and he says, when you throw a party, don't invite your powerful friends. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and then you will be repaid in heaven because they won't be able to repay you in this life. He unveils that the purpose of this party was simply a show of power for the Pharisee. And then he goes on in verses 15 through 24 to tell this parable of the great banquet. And notice verse 15. I'm going to read verse 15, and then I'm going to summarize the parable, and then I'm going to read verse 24, and then we're going to jump, jump into talking about it a little bit. 
Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. From this turning point, Jesus then tells this parable. There is a man who owns a big house and he wants to throw a party. And so he sends out invitations and at some point everything is ready. And so he tells his servant, go out to all the people that were invited and tell them all things are ready, come to the feast. The servant goes out to the people who were invited and he tells them, it's ready, come. And one person says, well, I've just bought a field, sorry, can't make it. Another has bought five yoke of oxen and he says, sorry, can't make it. Another says, well, well I just got married, sorry, can't make it. The servant goes back and he tells the master, and the master is angry. And he says, go into the city and the alleyways and, and invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind and, and, and bring them in. The servant says, I've done this, and yet there is still room. And the master says, go, go beyond the city to the, to the, the highways and the hedges and, and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. And then look how Jesus ends the parable somewhat ominously in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Why did Jesus tell this parable? Well, it came after that man said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. There were people who were interested in eating with him or with God in the kingdom. And I think what the person who said that was saying is, this is what the kingdom is going to be like. This, this socially elite class, this is what the kingdom is going to look like. And Jesus is going to flip that upside down. Jesus will tell this parable and his main point is the only people who are going to be in the kingdom are the people who are committed to me. If you want to be with me, you must be committed to me. Luke will go on in the rest of chapter 14, and, and he will show Jesus saying things like, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate your life. If you want to be my disciple, you, you must bear your cross and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, you must renounce all that you have. If you want to be with me, you must be committed to me. There are three things that we learn about this parable, or learn from this parable about commitment that I want to highlight. The first is that nothing stands in the way of the committed person. If a committed person wants something, they go and get it. Think about Zacchaeus when he wants to see Jesus, but he's too short. The crowds are too big. He wants to see Jesus, but he can't. Does he just give up and go home? That wee little man climbed the sycamore tree. He wasn't willing to stop. He was going to do whatever it took to see Jesus. We think about the paralytic man and his friends. The paralyzed man is trying to get to Jesus. His friends are carrying him. Jesus is in a house teaching, but the house is too full and they can't get in. So they climb up on the roof. They tear a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down right in front of Jesus. Whatever it takes, we are going to get to Jesus. That is commitment. No field, no ox, no wife keeps the committed person from getting to Jesus. And in, in our life, no friend, no popularity, no sport, no job, no school keeps the committed person from getting to God. You want to know who's going to be in heaven someday? 
We might answer that question by saying, well, well, those who are baptized, I think that's kind of the, been the typical answer for a while. Those who are baptized and, and, and go to church, or those who are baptized and they try to follow Jesus in their life. And, and that's all true, and I'm not trying to make light of that at all. But the people who are going to get to heaven are the people who wanted it more than anything in the world. There will be people who have been baptized on the day of judgment who will not be able to go into heaven because they didn't want it enough. The people who are going to be in heaven are the people who wanted it more than anything else. It's interesting in this parable that the two things, the two excuses that people give. What might get in my way of getting to the party with Jesus? The first two people gave... uh, Excuses of field and oxen. So riches and possessions is kind of the group that I gave for that. The other one had just taken a wife. Relationships. What might get in my way of getting into the party with Jesus and getting to the celebration of heaven, the feast, the marriage banquet of heaven? The committed person examines their life and makes sure that riches and possessions and relationships are not getting in their way. The second thing we learn from this parable is that the committed person doesn't make excuses. They know the master doesn't listen to excuses. When Adam and Eve sinned, they made excuses. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed Satan. And you know who was punished? All three of them. Because God didn't care about their excuses. He cared about their choices and their actions. God doesn't listen to excuses. We think about the story of Naaman, the leper who was told to wash himself in the Jordan River, and he said, the Jordan's too dirty. I'm not doing that. Did God say, all right, well, yeah, you're right. The Jordan is a little too dirty this week. Maybe we could give you a couple other options. No, God had given him one way, the way, and that was what he expected him to do. He didn't listen to Naaman's excuse for why the Jordan was too dirty. God doesn't listen to excuses. The committed person understands this and doesn't waste his breath trying to make them. Finally, from this parable, the master only wants those who are committed. Revelation, the book of Revelation will tell us that if we are lukewarm, he's going to vomit us out of his mouth. He doesn't want any part of us if we are not committed. This is another quote that I thought illustrated this well. If you don't plan to live the Christian life totally committed to knowing your God and to walking in obedience to him, then don't begin. For this is what Christianity is all about. It is a change of citizenship, a change of governments, a change of allegiance. If you have no intention of letting Christ rule your life, then forget Christianity. It's not for you. If joining the master at his party is not the most important thing to you, then you won't get in. End of story, no excuses accepted. What does this look like in the lives of three biblical characters? Just one verse about each. We're not going to go into a bunch of detail, but in Daniel chapter 1, we find Daniel reaching a dilemma. So Daniel was growing up in Jerusalem at the time when the Babylonians came to overtake and destroy Jerusalem. Daniel was part of a group of young men who were carried to Babylon, and they were educated in the school system there. They were taught the Babylonian language. They were taught about the the Babylonians' gods. They were forced to serve the, the Babylonian king, who at that time was Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 
had likely seen people of his family murdered right in front of him. He saw his home burning as he is carried away. He is forced to go into the situation where he is uncomfortable, where he doesn't know a lot. He doesn't speak the same language. And as part of the Jewish culture, Daniel was brought up with certain dietary restrictions. We know those. We talk about them as being kosher. He wasn't allowed to eat pork as part of the Jewish religion. And yet he's going to be in the king's house eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine. Well, look what his thought process is before he comes in contact with that temptation. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. When faced with the possibility of choosing right or wrong, what did Daniel do? It says he resolved. Other versions say he determined, he purposed, he made up his mind. Daniel thought about the things he might be tempted with and went ahead and made up his mind on what his decision was going to be in regards to those things. This is something I would encourage us as Christians, especially as young Christians and as parents with our kids, to do. Before we are put in situations where we might have the opportunity to sin, which, if we all know, we all know happens every day. We have those opportunities every day. Before we are put in those situations, we need to resolve, we need to determine what our response in those situations is going to be, just like Daniel did. When some of my friends at school or work are talking about someone behind their back, what am I, I going to do in, in that situation? When I'm hanging out with my friends or coworkers and they, they start drinking alcohol, what am I going to do? in that situation. When we sit down to watch a movie and someone picks out a movie that's inappropriate, what am, what am I going to do? What's my response going to be? When a friend or coworker sends me an inappropriate text message or a link to a video that is inappropriate, how am I going to handle that? When I'm alone with my boyfriend or girlfriend, what am I going to do or, or not do? We need to resolve, we need to determine, we need to make up our minds what our response in those situations is going to be before they happen, that way we don't waver. Like Daniel, decide what you are committed to before being put in a challenging situation. Ezra was another man who grew up during the time uh, similar to Daniel. During Babylonian captivity, he is actually allowed to go back to Jerusalem after the, the temple is rebuilt so that he can help teach the people because he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, it said. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, here is how it describes Ezra. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. If you want something, this is how you get it. Other versions will say he devoted his life. He worked hard to know. If you want something, this is how you get it. You set your heart on it. You firmly resolve to make it yours. You devote your life to it. You work hard for it. Not so long ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers. And in it, he brought to light what he called the 10,000-hour rule, that in order to truly master something, you had to practice that craft or skill or whatever it might be for 10,000 hours. To master a skill, it takes time, was what his argument was. 
And we, we know that's true. We think about it in terms of athletics. We just finished the, the Women's World Cup this morning. If you were committed to women's soccer, you woke up at 6 a.m. to watch that this morning. But athletes, especially Olympians, from a very young age, they are prepped and chosen, and they give their lives to whatever sport that may be, whether it's gymnastics or swimming or running. They are primed for that one specific sport to be the greatest in the world, and they get there by giving their time to it. We think about this in the medical field. When you go in with appendicitis and they need to take your appendix out, do you want the surgeon who comes up and says, well, this is going to be my first one, but I think it'll go pretty good. I've read a lot of books. Or do you want the guy coming in who says, well, this is my 10,000th one. I could probably do it with my eyes closed. I want the guy who's done 10,000 already doing mine. Mastering a skill takes time. This is what we call apprenticeships. You see someone do something, you follow them for a while, then you start doing it while they're watching you, and then eventually you've done it so many times that they say, all right, you're good to go. You can do this on your own. Mastering something takes time and commitment. Why do we apply that to everything in our lives except Christianity? We know that to be true, and yet we don't give this time. The essence of the name we wear, Christian, means Christ-like. We are to give ourselves to the craft of becoming more like Him. That takes time. It doesn't just happen by showing up to church a few times a week. We must set our heart, firmly resolve, devote our lives, work hard to become more like Him. The church doesn't like that phrase today, work hard. You throw that out on the internet, people are going to slam you because we are saved by faith through grace. And I would say amen to that. But we see passages through the Bible where people talk about commitment and devotion and working hard. Ashley and I were listening to a sermon a few weeks ago, and and the, the speaker phrased it this way. He said, the two realities are this, in terms of our walk with Christ. Is earning involved? No. Is effort involved? Yes. I I work hard not to earn my salvation, not to earn grace, but to display it in my life. That is what we work hard to do. Ezra set his heart to study the law of God, to do it and to teach it. What have you set your heart to do? And then finally, in this section, 1 Timothy chapter 4, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because Jason referenced it last Sunday night. 1 Timothy chapter 4, this comes to mind anytime I'm going to be kind of focusing towards uh, younger people. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 12 through 16. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul tells Timothy, don't let, let anyone look down on you because you're young. Now, his point is there. Not that, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, because you're stronger than they are. You look better than the old people. You're cooler than the old people. That's not what he's saying. He says, don't let let anyone look down on you, but set them an example in faith, in love, in purity. He will go on to say, to devote yourself to Scripture. How am I going to become an example to even those that are older to me? Well, I devote myself to Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He says, to practice these things, to immerse yourself in them. Uh, We think of immersion in the context of baptism as a burial. We are buried beneath the waters of baptism. 
Timothy is told to bury yourself in the scripture, to bury yourself in the work of God. And I like that picture in terms of our own life today. What would happen if we as a church buried ourselves in God's work? He says to persist in this. Timothy is told by Paul, be committed. Timothy being a young man, be committed and don't stop. Doesn't matter what age you are. The expectation is still the same, that you would be an example. Now, all of this has been somewhat generic, and every time I speak, Ashley tells me I need to be specific. So I want to finish with three specific things that we can take home with us, that we can take throughout this week. All that we've established so far is that we need to be committed and we show commitment through certain things, but what does that look like in my life? How can I go through this week and actually prove I am committed? What applications can we take home tonight? And I just have three quick ones. The first thing is I want us to commit ourselves to knowing God through his word and through prayer. Just like Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God, we must set our heart to know God's word for that is how we come to know God. Now, now, I'm not talking about a checklist here. Notice this doesn't say Bible reading, check. Okay? This isn't, I read my chapter today, check. It's no God. That is the purpose of getting into the Word each day. We are trying to know God through the words that he has given us. That is the goal. That is the purpose. If I come to the Bible with the the idea that I just need to read it today to get out of the way, get it out of the way so I can be done with it and move on to other things, then I'm not going to get anything from that. I want us to commit to knowing God through his word and through prayer. If you're like me, you know this. You know you need to be committed to this. And throughout various periods of my life, I have done well at this. And I have made this commitment that, all right, I I need to to do better about getting into the Word and trying to know God through the Word and praying. And I do well for a few days or a few weeks, and then before long, I'm off the rails again. So how can we do this and remain committed? Before long, we become too tired, we become too busy, too fill-in-the-blank with whatever excuse the Master doesn't listen to. How can we remain consistent with this? We need to have a plan. Now, for you, for everybody, this might look a little bit different. Some people have more time than others. I'm not going to be able to read the whole Bible in a month. You probably won't be able to either. Some people feel that three chapters a day is a good thing, a good good approach for them. Some people think that two chapters a day. Some people think that one chapter. Some people think that a few verses. The point is not how much, how much content or quantity you are reading, but how much time and, and thought and meditation are you giving to the Word. Jason has the, the Bible reading schedule out in the, the front foyer. That is a good opportunity for you to have a plan that's already given to you. Some people approach Bible reading like this, and it never works. All right. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible today. I'm going to read, all right, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 46 is it for today. That's not going to be very helpful. I used to be anti-Bible reading plans because I felt like they were too structured, too rigid, and I wanted to be able to come into the Word without restrictions and knowing, well, I just got to read my three chapters today. I didn't want that to, to get in my way. And you know what happened? I never read my Bible. Bible reading plans have purpose and have value have a plan. Going along with that, have 
a partner or partners. Maybe that's a friend you meet up with once a week and talk about things that you read. Maybe that's your family and it's around the dinner table and you, read, you talk through the Bible reading or maybe you read it together. This is the beauty of us as a church having the same plan. Our conversations could go like this. And Joel, I really loved Nehemiah chapter 8 this past week. It was such a humble prayer from the Israelites about how they had failed God over and over and over again, and yet God was merciful over and over and over again. And I realized, that's the story of my life. And I need to pray more like that. What's been helpful for you? Maybe if we were on the same plan, not only would it allow us to stay on track, but it might allow us to get past weekly church small talk. And we could get a little deeper in our conversations. Have a partner or partners. Have a schedule. If possible, plan for the same time every day for when you read your Bible. Make it a meeting you can't miss. If you have a work meeting at 1 o'clock on a certain day from 1 to 2, and the kids say, hey, can we do this at 1 o'clock? You say, no, I have a meeting. Well, why don't you do the same thing with your Bible reading, with your time with God? What would that say to your kids? Kids, what would that say to your parents? I have a meeting today I can't miss with the creator of the universe. And then have a mindset. And what I mean by this is don't restrict this time of, of spending, getting to know God to 30 minutes a day or to two chapters a day or to whatever that may look like. One thing I, I, I like that I have not been faithful to or uh, great about doing, but I, I think is a good concept, is to write a verse on a note card, stick it in your back pocket, and throughout the day, pull it out. Think through it. Maybe that's a verse from, from your reading for that week. Maybe it's a verse about something you're struggling with that you need to be reminded of. Have a mindset that realizes I don't just need to commit to 30 minutes of knowing God. I need to commit of, to 24 hours of knowing God. One of the scariest verses in the Bible J Jason also referenced last week is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and do many great works, mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. If we are not taking time to know God, it doesn't matter what else we're doing. He wants us to have a relationship with him. Commit yourself to knowing God through his word and through prayer. Commit yourself to doing the right thing no matter what everyone else around you is doing. Commitment to God is not confined to Bible study and prayer time. In fact, it's more clearly seen by the way we live our lives other places. Like Daniel, we need to resolve, we need to make up our mind to do the right thing no matter what everyone else around us is doing. The excuses everyone else was doing it or my friend made me do it are the oldest in the book. Literally, Adam and Eve used those at the very beginning and they're quite possibly the most useless excuses we can give. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And I like that because it, it specifically says, if I'm at home where being a Christian is easy or away in school or at work, wherever that may be, that it is more challenging, my aim, my goal is still the same to be pleasing to God. Commit yourself to doing the right thing no matter what. Rid yourself of the goals to be cool, to be popular, to get everyone to like you. Those goals will lead you down a path you don't want to go. 
Your goal is to please an audience of one. This life we have been gifted is all about him. It's not about us. When I was in residency, one of the things when we were on call for the medicine team, so if you're admitted to the hospital, you're seen by the medicine team. And when we were on call for the medicine team, that that meant you were the, the person for the day. If anything happened in the hospital, you had to be there. So if a code went off, meaning someone in the hospital had passed away and they were a full code and, and the goal was to bring them back to life, you had to run there no matter what else you were doing. It was your responsibility to get there and you were to lead the code. You were to lead the nurses, the respiratory team, whoever else was in there to try and resuscitate that person back to life. That was scary. You can imagine day one, I have no idea what I'm doing. Thankfully on day one, there's a lot of smarter people there with you. But by the time you get to second year and you're in the middle of the night and other people are asleep, you might be the one, the only one in there. That was really scary for me and would make me really nervous and anxious. But it kind of dawned on me one day, while, while I am so nervous, why am I so nervous? Why was I so anxious? Well, it was because I was thinking about myself. I was worried that people were going to think, he doesn't know what he's doing. He shouldn't be here. He doesn't belong here. We call it the imposter syndrome. I was worried people would think think that about me. All the while, someone had literally just died right in front of me. And their family probably grieving in the corner out in the hallway. And I was worried about myself. So kind of the way that I came through that or uh, came over that was I started kind of saying this in my head as I was running to the code from whatever I was doing before. It's not about me. It's not about me. It doesn't matter what other people think of me. It doesn't matter what they say about me. I am going to do the best I can for that person on the bed and their family. It's not about me. And when we're tempted to sin, what are we most often thinking about? Who are we most often thinking about? Myself, right? If I'm being tempted by other people, I'm worried, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to say about me? And what I want you to say in your head over and over again is, it's not about me. It's not about me. Make that your mantra this week. It's not about me. And finally, quickly, commit yourself to purity. The kids went back to school a few weeks ago and talking to them about the prevalence of the LGBTQIA plus at their schools is scary. Principal on the first day says, if you guys want to change your pronouns, come down and see me. Apparently, it's a lot more prevalent this year. That's scary for me as a parent, and I feel for them as Christians in the public school system. Seeing the way parents let their daughters dress would be a nightmare to be a teen boy today. It's nearly impossible to watch a movie these days without some type of sexual content, immodesty, inappropriate conversations. Pornography is easily accessible from something we let our kids carry in their pockets. The norm is not to wait until marriage to have sex. It's almost looked down upon if you only have one partner for life. And it's not that these things have not been happening, but now they're not happening behind closed doors. And society and the government is not only accepting of these things, but they're pushing them on everybody else. Now more than ever, we must commit ourselves to purity. We must make up our minds what our stance on these things will be. Before Daniel, 
was put into a difficult situation with the king's food, he had already made up his mind, we must make up our minds as well. We need to have these conversations with our kids. We need to go through specific scenarios with them. If you're put in this situation, what are you going to do? If you're put in that situation, what are you going to do? We need to have the challenging, uncomfortable, awkward conversations with them, whether it be your children or your grandchildren or a mentor. You need to have those conversations with them that may ultimately save their souls. God assigned our gender at birth. He didn't give us a choice. Regardless of what letter or acronym or plus, or plus sign they come up with, our stance is the same. We love them as lost souls, but we do not budge on the fact that anything other than one man, one woman within the context of marriage is sin. Roger and Jason have both said things like that from the pulpit recently, but parents, your kids need to hear it from you. They need to hear it from you. If you are not determined to wait until marriage to have sex, you will likely not remain pure until marriage. The opportunities are too prevalent and too accessible. To the unmarried, make up your mind to remain pure until marriage. Commit yourself to this. Make it a promise to God and to your future spouse, even if you don't know who that will be yet, that your heart and body will be theirs and theirs alone. Commit commit yourself to these three things to knowing God through his word and prayer, to doing the right thing no matter what everyone else is doing, and to purity. Let's, let's say a quick prayer, and then I'll offer the invitation, and then we'll be done. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for today and for the opportunity we had to come back tonight and to praise you, and we pray that you are pleased. God, you are the greatest thing that we can commit our lives to. And I pray specifically for the young in this room, that as they are going back to school and maybe finishing up with school and headed to work, that you would help them to be committed to you above all else, that you would help them be committed to knowing you through your word and through prayer, that you would help them to be committed to doing the right thing no matter what, and that you would help them to be committed to purity. Help us all in those areas, Father, to give our lives to you. Thank you for Jesus, and as we finish up talking about him. May you and may he be glorified. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I briefly mentioned that Jesus shows his commitment to us by dying on the cross. He showed he was committed to you by giving up all he had in heaven to come to this earth and to to suffer on the cross for your sake. The questions we must answer are these three that I gave at the beginning. Are you committed to him? Ashley sent me something yesterday that I briefly want to add in. It's from the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. And it says, Jesus hath now many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. He hath many desirous of comfort, but few of tribulation. All desire to rejoice with him. Few are willing to endure anything for him or with him. Many follow Jesus unto the breaking of bread but few to the drinking of the cup of his passion. Are you committed to him? Shauna had talked to me the other morning, and she had had a dream the night before that life had ended. She's probably giving me the glare right now because she didn't know I was going to do this. But she had had a dream that life had ended, and she was, she was standing before the creator of the universe. And we talked about that, and... That's, that's scary. I've had a dream like that too. And that kind of wakes you up a little bit. 
But what we have to realize is that one day that won't be a dream. That will be the reality. That all of us will be standing before our maker and he is going to ask us, what did you do with the life that I gave you? What did you commit yourself to him? And if it was anything other than him, we will be separated. That is a dire thing we need to think about. If you have not yet made the decision to commit yourself to Christ, do that tonight. If you need to be baptized, you can bury yourself beneath the waters of baptism, putting the old man to death and coming up a new man. And maybe you've already done that, but you have not remained faithful. If we can help you in any way, please come forward right now while we stand and while we sing.